friends. Wow, I've got four friends. Welcome back. It's good to see your faces. Uh, Casey, great job. Takes a lot of courage to share your story. I think you did great. I don't know where you ended up at, but good job. Um, I am a really big Iowa Hawkeye fan. Wow. Now, I, yes, I see you. I see you wrestlers. I understand. Bear with me here. It's not about wrestling. It's not about wrestling. You see, my, my dad grew up going to Iowa football games for about 25 years. He had season tickets, and he would take me along as a young boy, and I just fell in love, um, just like some of you who grew up Panther fans or Iowa State fans or whatever. Or if you're like Jay, you don't care about sports ball. <laughs> but, but so I've, I've had this passion for Iowa sports, and uh, Iowa just played Michigan State in basketball right before basic started. And how many of you were born in 1993? Raise your hand. 1993, not, not the exact year, but were, how many of you were alive in 1993? Okay, not very many. That was, the last, that was the last time the Iowa Hawkeyes beat Michigan State in basketball in East Lansing. Tonight they... They won at Michigan State. So I'm nervous, but I can't tell if it's because I'm so excited about that or because there's a bunch of you in the room. But So anyways, I miss my dad a lot. He died four years ago, and uh, yeah, sports. You guys are in it, understand. So anywho, welcome back. We've got a new series. We're going to start this uh, four-week series called Rhythm. We're going to start tonight in the book of 1 Kings. If you brought a Bible along, if you'd like to open that up to 1 Kings chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, your cell phone, uh, they have these amazing things that you can just like type in stuff and information. Boom, it's there. Incredible. They didn't have that in 1993 either. <laughs> if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. You can just listen along to the story. Before we get going, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share a prayer that I've been praying over the last uh, three or four weeks. It's a prayer... Um, that A.W. Tozer wrote. Someone accidentally, I think, left it on my desk. And uh, maybe it wasn't an accident at all. It's okay. So I'm going to pray that. If you guys would pray with me, we'll get started here. Oh, God and Father, we repent of our sinful preoccupation with visible things. The world has been too much with us. Thou hast been here, and we knew it not. We have been blind to thy presence. Open our eyes that we may behold thee in and around us. For Christ's sake, amen. 
So we're going to start here in 1 Kings chapter 19, talking about this uh, teaching series called Rhythm. The idea is we're going to look at four spiritual disciplines that are throughout the Bible, namely in Jesus, that we want you guys to try and incorporate and live out in your life. Tonight we're going to talk about the word retreat. Um, we're going to start right in verse 1. We're picking up a story where Elijah has just had kind of a, a mountaintop experience, both figuratively and literally. Um, he's just had an encounter with God, seen God at work, and then he literally ran down the mountain. And this is where we pick up the story. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. She's referring to the prophets that Elijah had killed. Now Ahab is the king of Israel at this time. Jezebel is his wife. Jezebel is also in charge of all of the prophets of the god Baal. Um, and these are the, the prophets who Elijah has has killed. So Jezebel's not very happy with Elijah. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went on a day's journey into the desert, he came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals. <laughs> How convenient. And a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. God showed up in the quiet. I love this story. I love what it says about who God is and how we can expect to encounter him. We need to take seriously the idea of retreat in our lives. We need to take seriously the idea of taking time to being alone and silent. Nowen once said that without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. We do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside some time to be with God 
and listen to him. So why is silence so hard? For me in my life, sometimes I'm afraid of what's going to happen in the silence. I'm afraid of what I'll hear in the silence. The relationship that I've broken. The conviction for time I've wasted on stupid things. That doubt about who I am and about who God is. I'm afraid God might whisper to me about some of those things. But isn't a gentle whisper always more effective in the end than yelling, than noise? How many of you know a yeller? Maybe a coach, parent, teacher, friend? They thought that maybe by yelling and yelling louder that somehow you would listen better or change. You know who's a great yeller in our spiritual lives? The devil. The finest trick of the devil is to persuade you that he does not exist. I'm convinced that is being done through unending busyness in our lives. Busyness without retreat and rest. I think the devil is using busyness in our lives to distract us from God. He's using any and all forms of noise, visible, audible, internal, to drown out the whisper of God. Have you guys ever had an Elijah moment? You've been running and running and going. Maybe you feel all alone. Maybe you've even seen God at work in the midst of your busyness. But you're running and you're going and the fear starts to creep in and the fear starts to lie to you. And then you hit the wall and you sit down on the floor and you say, I quit. I quit. Any of you guys been there before? I know I have. Where do we go from there? What do we do then? Well, for Elijah, it was a retreat. It was a retreat into solitude. First he traveled for 40 days and 40 nights. Then he went up a mountain and into a cave. A place to be still and listen for God. A place to hear the whisper of his voice. And what about Jesus? The one we follow? Those of us who claim him and worship him? What about him? Was retreat and silence a part of his spiritual rhythm? Absolutely it was. Read the Gospels if you don't believe me. And Jesus didn't just retreat to get away from the crowds. He did it to spend time, intimate time, with his Father in heaven. I'm going to read a couple of examples from the Gospels and talk about those to point that out. Again, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Matthew chapter 14, starting right in verse 1. Matthew 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, 
It is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. You guys, you're going to experience pain, suffering, loss in this life, even if you're following Jesus. That's a guarantee. But look at how Jesus responded to these feelings. What did he do? He retreated. Look at this one sentence. He withdrew. It's private. Boat, pretty private. Privately to a solitary place. Four words after he heard this news. I think that says something very important about how we're supposed to respond when we're feeling grief, loss, suffering, pain in our lives. And just because you retreat doesn't mean that the people are going to stop coming. Look at the verse right after that. What does it say? It's not even the verse after it. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. Just because you retreat doesn't mean that the people are going to stop coming. The demands of life are going to stop coming. They will. That's why it's so important. Let's look in uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 5. Chapter 5, starting in verse 12. Luke five twelve. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground, and he begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. And immediately, the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus heals a man. People find out about it. The word spreads, and they start coming in crowds. They want to hear him teach. They want his healing. But it says Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. I find that interesting. Jesus had unlimited healing power from his Father in heaven. But he didn't fix everyone. He didn't heal everyone's physical ailments. 
He didn't fix everyone's external problems. He was able to say no. He was able to retreat. His time with his father in heaven was the most important thing in his life. What about you? What about you guys? You don't have to fix everyone's problems. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to be anyone's savior. You have permission to say no in your life. See, Jesus had a rhythm in his life, and it didn't mean that he wasn't busy. I'm not trying to say if you retreat and have silence and solitude that you won't be busy. It's because of your busyness that we need it. Jesus suffered loss. It wasn't that he had a clean and shiny schedule with everything in it for a whole entire year laid out. He had a life of rhythm with his father that included retreat, rest, prayer, solitude, and silence. I was sitting with a a student recently, and she was struggling with this idea of, of busyness in her life. And she tried something practical. For one day, she drove only the speed limit, no faster. For one day. And she reported back and said, people are crazy. I'm just driving the speed limit, I'm just obeying the law, and people are making weird gestures behind glass, flailing hands, in a really big hurry to get to nowhere fast. She learned a valuable lesson in just that one practical thing. Maybe that's something you can try this week, something easy, something practical. Maybe you can turn the radio off in the car. Maybe you silence your phone or put it on airplane mode. Just be. Uh, over Christmas break, my dear sweet mother uh, was cleaning out was cleaning out one of her boxes and found some old paperwork, which I believe we have on the screen. Exhibit seven oh one. Sorry, I watched too much Making a Murderer over Christmas break. Uh, so she dropped it off. She's like, do you want this? And I'm like, no, Mom, it's from junior high. Anybody go to Pete Junior High? What's up? Yeah, represent. So Pete Junior High, this letter is dated November 30th, 1995. Yes, I am an old man. I'm going to read it to you. Not because it necessarily applies to solitude or retreat, but it's really pretty funny. And I do have a point. Dear Mr. and Mrs. Moore, that's my mom and dad, thanks for returning the contract with Carter this morning. In response, I don't make it a procedure to discuss discipline issues of other students with those not directly involved in this case. I appreciate your concern. First of all, Carter had kept a fairly low profile up until the last few weeks in school. (laughs) September 19, Mr. Brooks contacted you with concerns about disruptive and inappropriate behavior in science, at which time I issued Carter a warning that further concerns would result in a behavior contract. Anybody get one of those before? On Tuesday, November 28, Carter was identified as one of three young men who were disruptive, uncooperative, and violating school procedures slash policies in art class. Each case was dealt with individually, as is my policy, and consequences were administered consistently as previous interventions warranted to all three students. 
Carter lost his, and it's in quotes, noon privileges. What noon privileges did we have at Pete Junior High? Foursquare? Carter lost his noon privileges for one week and must complete a learning packet on disrupting class. This is real life. At the same time, I have followed through with a behavior contract as was reviewed with Carter on September 19, 1995. Mrs. Grun, Carter's Spanish instructor, informed me this morning she has been having concerns with Carter in class, disruptive, disrespectful, and uncooperative. She was in the process of calling you when the contract was received. Carter's feeling that he is being singled out. <laughs> is <a laughs> this is great. This is great is a natural feeling when he continues to make inappropriate choices. It tends to go with the territory. That is my purpose in enforcing a behavior contract. It is very specific in making expectations clear and understandable while establishing consequences which are consistent and predictable. As a result, Carter can assume responsibility for his actions. Wow. A little insight of my life right there. So, just like the letter said, we can assume responsibility for our actions. There will be consequences for the pace of life and the lack of retreat and silence. Now, what I do remember from that science class that I got in trouble in on September 19, 1995, <laughs> Mr. Brooks' class, I remember learning about inertia. An object in motion stays in motion unless, anybody? acted upon by an outside force. Good job, science friends. Uh, I must have been listening that day. <laughs> Anyways, inertia. An object in motion stays in motion unless contacted upon by an outside force. Makes sense, like in the physical scientific world, right? I'm driving a car towards a wall. If I don't slam on the brakes, the wall is going to stop me. It is an outside force, right? In the spiritual world, imagine that Busyness. Busyness is going, going, going. We have to contact that with an outside force. Or we're going to go straight into that brick wall or fly out of control. Unless we combat busyness with retreat and silence, we will end up under a broom tree like Elijah. And I got one more story for you. Last winter, I got a text from my wife. She said, hey, the kids are sick. I took them to the doctor. Can you stop at Hy-Vee and pick up some medications? Sure, absolutely. Drove through the drive through pharmacy, which is awesome, by the way. And a man comes to the window, and I say, hey, I'm so-and-so. And he goes to get the medicine. He comes back to the window and looks at the packages, and he says, okay, I got one here for Elijah. Uh, can you just tell me his birth date? And I said, yeah, of course. His birthday is... I, f I don't remember. He looked at me funny and said, okay, well, what about Kale? Oh, yeah, firstborn son. Kale's birthday is... <laughs> phone, phone a friend? <laughs> at this point, I can see the man's gears turning, and he's thinking, yeah, this guy might not be who he says he is. So I quickly pull out my driver's license and I show it to him and say, yes, sir, I am in fact their father. Can you please give me the medicine so I can go home to my wife? Stop judging me with your eyes. I didn't say that last part. 
but I was thinking it. He did. He gave me the medicine, and I started to drive away. And as I was driving away, it hit me that I was so busy and so overwhelmed. The discipline of rest, retreat, solitude had disappeared from my life for a period of time. My head was so full of stuff swimming that I couldn't even remember my kids' birthdays. It was a humbling moment. So over the course of the past year, this past year, I've been disciplining myself to have regular time alone with God. Times of retreat and rest, times of solitude, silence. I've been disciplining myself to say no, even to good things. You can only do about three or four things great in your life with great energy and great passion. Don't cut yourself and others short by spreading yourself so thin. And God has whispered to me in the quiet. In the quiet, he has affirmed me. In the quiet, he has corrected me. He has strengthened me. He has renewed me. Now, I used to like the idea of silence. Now I crave my times of silence. Silence isn't sexy, but it has substance. It sustains us. Some of you are going to have to make some big changes in the way you live your life if you're going to take your spiritual journey seriously. Some of you are going to have to ask some tough questions like, is there any space in my calendar for God? Am I more afraid of what God might whisper than not hearing him at all? Do I crave Netflix, my girlfriend or boyfriend, going to the party, my cell phone, more than I do time with my maker? It was a Friday when they nailed Jesus to the cross. They hung him up to be crucified. He died on that cross. They took him down. He was put in a tomb. A stone covered it. And there was silence. Friday night passed. Saturday morning came. Saturday night came. Silence. God, where are you? And God whispered, here I am. And it wasn't in the earthquake. It wasn't in the fire. It wasn't in the wind. It was in the quiet of the early morning on a Sunday. Jesus was alive. Jesus was alive. What God did in that silence changes everything for you and for me. That truth has changed my entire life. This letter is a tip of the iceberg of who I was. What God did in that silence changes everything for you and for me. I pray that it changes yours. May you have the courage to give more time to the one who made time.
May the word no become part of your vocabulary. May you embrace silence and hear God's whisper. Amen. Now, I've been up here talking for probably 25 minutes or so about silence and retreat. We're all gathered in one room, and now we're going to put this into practice. We're going to spend the next few minutes in silence. So what I'd ask you to do is just get as comfortable as you can in the chair you're in. And when you're ready, close your eyes. Take a deep breath in through your nose. And exhale through your mouth. Breathe in silence. Exhale the noise in your heart and your mind. Be still in the presence of God.
I want you guys to remain sitting with your eyes closed. I'm going to invite our band to come forward. And in a moment, we're going to have a chance to respond and worship through music to who God is. But I want to encourage you to sit and listen to the words of this first song. Before we do that, I'd like to leave you with this prayer. Within each of us, there is a silence. A silence as vast as a universe. We are afraid of it, and we long for it. When we experience that silence, we remember who we are. Creatures of the stars, created from the cooling of this planet, created from dust and gas, created from the elements, created from time and space, created from silence. In our present culture, silence is something like an endangered species, an endangered fundamental. The experience of silence is now so rare that we must cultivate it and treasure it. Politicians and visionaries will not return us to the sacredness of life. That will be done by ordinary men and women who together or alone can say, remember to breathe, remember to feel, remember to care. Let us do this for our children and ourselves and our children's children. Let us practice for life's sake. Amen.